I'm going to begin this morning with kind of a generic night at a, at a married home. It's going to be uh, the little image I'm going to give you, or the example is going to be overdone, overdressed. It's just to demonstrate a principle. In this case, it's a bad husband, because that's safer for me. But it could go either way. Um, I just want to make it out of the parking lot. <clears throat> so this is what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine a couple, they're sitting at, uh, watching TV uh, in the evenings. Kids are down, some mushy show with love and drama, like on Hallmark. <laughs> and, you know, so there's this people falling in love on TV, and the wife gets to thinking. And, of course, the guy on TV is always perfect. So eventually the wife like, leans over to the husband and she says this. She says, honey, do you love me? Right? And she can't see it, but he does this. <sighs> like, ugh. Oh. And he says, of course I love you. And then she says, but you never say you love me. You don't ever say it. And he responds in this way. He says, I shouldn't have to say it. Isn't it obvious that I love you? quiet. And she says, well, no, it isn't that obvious that you love me. And so then he kind of gets defensive and he starts going down his litany of all the things he does that makes him a loving husband. I work to provide. I work hard to provide for you, to give you the things you want and need. I'm faithful to you. I come home every night. We spend our evenings together. I love, your, I love the children. I help raise them. I eat everything you make. And I, you know, I'm grateful even when I may not like it. And then he starts getting like, you know, excessively vague. Like, remember that time we did that thing at that place? That was fun, wasn't it? Um, and he gets quiet and she thinks for a while and she goes, I know, I know, I know. I know you love me, but those things don't make me feel special. They just don't make me feel special. And so he says is, as any lame-brained husband would in this case. And he goes, fine, I love you. There, you've heard it. Is that what you wanted? Right? Now, is that what she wanted? No, that's not what she wants. She doesn't want that. She doesn't want someone out of obligation to say, I love you. But at the same time, does he, does he love her? Probably so. It's my story. So he does. In case you're wondering, he does. He loves her very, very much. He does these things, and he loves in, in many ways, as, as many spouses do, um, he loves best out of kind of dutiful devotion. And this could be a man problem or a woman problem. It could be anywhere. At the end of the day, we're not really not talking about marriage. We're going to be talking about Christ in you. But I think many of us have been close enough to this, either as children in homes like this, or as spouses ourselves or in relationships where somebody loves very well through duty and devotion. They do things, they don't complain, they, they have the best in mind, they're faithful, they care. They just can't say things sometimes. They can't say, I love you, they're not very good at affection. But that's what she wants. She wants this affectionate cherishing from her husband. And so here's the question. Are these two forms of love different? Just different, different? Or are they qualitatively different? 
In other words, is our response to this husband or to this wife, look, he just loves differently and you just need to learn how that is. Right? Learn, learn to take the love he offers. Or do we say that and, but really there really is a particular value in affectionate love. Are they qualitatively different or are they just different? That's the question. And again, this question is not for you and your spouse primarily so you can stop pinching him. Uh, don't bash him over the head in the car on the way home. Your pastor told you to love me. None of that, all right? That's not the goal. The goal is really to bring you a little closer to asking this question about yourself and Jesus Christ. So if you would, please, open your Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. This is a Mary Martha account in Scripture. If you're using a Bible in the back of your seats, it's page 747. Now, anytime you're talking about Mary in the Bible, you've got to be very particular as to which Mary you're talking about because there's at least four of them. There's Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's Mary Magdalene. There's Mary, the wife of Clopas. And there's Mary, the sister of Martha, the brother of Lazarus, who in John chapter 11 was raised from the dead. So that's, this is the Mary we're talking about. The sister of Martha the sister of Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. And this Mary has an interesting uh, peculiarity about her, and that is she never shows up in Scripture apart from her sister. Every time you read about Mary, you're going to also read about Martha, and likewise. Martha and Mary, they show up as a team, and, they, and it's, difficult for, it's difficult for the reader not to compare the two when you read them in Scripture, because, well, for one, Jesus compares the two. And they're so different. The way they behave, the way they love, is very, very different. So I'm going to just recount a few of the scenes. There's one in Luke 10. This is earlier on in Jesus' ministry, where Jesus is reclining in a home. He's teaching in the home to people listening. And Mary and Martha are present. Now Martha, she's dutiful. She loves by labor. So you can imagine Martha has the dirty apron, and the flowery hands, you know, and she's rushing around trying to make everything perfect for the day because this, this master, this master teacher's present, everything has to be just right, and so she's hectically trying to handle the day and everything, and man, she could use a little help. And where's Mary? Mary's, like, reclined at the feet of Jesus, soaking in every word he has to say. She's just soaking it in at the feet of Christ. And Martha finally gets to the place where she can't handle it anymore, and she actually speaks up. She disrupts the party, and she's like, you know, Mary, if you would get off your rear end and come help me in the kitchen, this would be a half-decent party. Now, it's at that point, and I'm speaking harshly, or I'm, I'm obviously, Martha didn't say that. But she said about that, I mean, that's kind of the vibe that came out. And Jesus, Jesus responds to her. Now, does Jesus say, from your recollection, does Jesus say, well, Martha, Mary just loves differently. Like, you guys both have equal but different ways of loving me. I appreciate your labor. Mary just loves differently. Is that what Jesus says? No. Jesus doesn't say that at all to Martha. Jesus says, Martha, 
She's got it. And you ought to sit down. So it seems that there might be something qualitative about this kind of affectionate love. That Jesus would say, Mary has it and you don't. There's another occasion. It's in John chapter 11. Jesus is on his way to Lazarus because Lazarus was sick. Jesus had delayed his coming, but he's on his way. In the meantime, Lazarus has gone on. He's passed away. And so Mary and Martha are at home. It says that Mary's mourning. And it says that they get word that Jesus is on his way. So Martha gets up while Mary's mourning. Martha gets up and he goes and meets Jesus. Albeit to say, you know, no need to rush. Lazarus is past. And Martha says this to Jesus. She says, Jesus, I wish you'd got here earlier. Because then... Lazarus will be saved. Well, the Lord says something like this. The Lord says, Lazarus will certainly live again. And Martha looks at him and says, I understand. At the great resurrection, Lazarus will walk again, as we all will. And this is the point in Scripture where Jesus stares at her and says these words, I am the resurrection and the life. Right here in Scripture. Like if Scripture were a mountain range, this would be one of the snowy peaks of all of the Bible. Is Martha standing before Jesus, and Jesus, he's not preaching it on a hillside, he's not talking to all these people, he's staring at this one woman and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. To which she says, I believe that. I believe you are the Lord Jesus Christ. And I got no problem with that. I thought she did well there. But she goes home, and I just want you to watch how her sister behaves. She, Mary, Martha goes home, and she finds her sister, and her sister's still weeping and mourning. And this is what she says to her sister, Mary, the teacher is coming, and he wants to see you. And when Mary hears that, she springs up from her mourning, and she rushes out of the room. In fact, you get the impression in Scripture that they don't even know what's happening, the crowd. Like, what? What, what is Mary doing? Because she just takes off. And she hits the road, and she, she backtracks, and she finds Jesus. And when she finds Jesus, she falls on her feet and begins to weep at the feet of Jesus Christ. And it's this point in Scripture that it says this, that Christ was deeply moved, and he wept. Again, I do think there's something qualitatively different about these two kinds of love. This love that seems to pursue God as far as knowing who He is, as far as understanding His position and His role and His power and His work and His righteousness, understanding that He is the Lord Jesus Christ, that if He had been there, He couldn't save. That is, that is very dutiful kind of love. That's very faithful kind of love. There's nothing wrong with it. But I will say this. Mary at the feet of Jesus moved him to tears. And it's there when he said, where is Lazarus? It's interesting, in the 45th verse of the 11th chapter of John, it says this, after Christ had raised Lazarus from the dead, by the way, the Lord says this, he says, remove the stone, and Martha says, you don't want to do that? He's been in there for four days. It's going to smell. Martha is so practical. 
She's so practical. And I have to imagine that these two sisters mourning the loss of their, their brother, somebody's got to be strong. I mean, that's what Martha's thinking, I bet. Somebody's got to be strong here. Because Mary's, you know, she's deteriorated. She's crying and everything. Somebody has to be strong during this difficult time. Many of you who have been in this kind of time know that somebody in the family rises up. And they deal with it, and then a week and a half later, they mourn. And I wonder if this is Martha. She just has to be strong. But Martha's always this way. She's always this way. She always has a dirty apron on. But when these people, when Lazarus comes out of the tomb, the next, in the 45th verse it says there was a crowd that had been there because they were mourning with Mary. It's almost said in passing, but I, I, it catches me that the town had come out to mourn with Mary. I think there's something about her that just knows how to love and knows how to express love. And I think it should, we should call it to our, our attention, the way that she has this affectionate way of pouring her love out for others. And this is the love we see. Read with me here in, in John chapter 12. So this is another Mary and Martha scene. It's after the resurrection of Lazarus. Verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Now listen to this. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Now this account in John chapter 12, there's actually three accounts of this scene in Bethany. And they're, in, they're, they're very different. And they're in varying degrees of detail. In Mark and in Matthew, this account is also kind of conveyed to us. And so what I'm going to do is kind of relay the setting to you again, but I'm going to add in the details from some of the other chapters. So like John says, this is six days before Passover. This is the very end of Jesus' life. Tomorrow, he enters the city on Palm Sunday. So this is the Sabbath before the Sunday into which he enters the city. You might think of it that way. It says he's in Bethany, which is the hometown of Lazarus. He's at the house of Simon the leper. Lazarus is there as a guest. Jesus is there also, as are the sisters. And it's at this, this dinner or this party that we see Mary do this very interesting thing. She, she takes this, this bottle of very expensive perfume. I don't know what nard is. 
I would not have named it that if I was a perfume company. But apparently it translates into something really fancy. Um, she takes this very expensive perfume. It's in an alabaster jar. She breaks the seal of it. And we know from the other Gospels that she begins by pouring it on his head and then his body. And John says that he does it to his feet as well. That he anoints his, she anoints his feet and that she wipes his feet with her hair. Now, I think one of the challenges in understanding this, this offering is, first of all, it's hard for us to imagine perfume that is worth a year's wages. I mean, that's not very... We, we just don't find that anymore. And even if we did, it's hard to imagine why does Mary have this perfume? I mean, what's this woman doing with a, such an expensive thing? And there are no great answers for that. We don't, uh, there are no biblical scholars that have unearthed the kind of evidence that would give you incontrovertible answer to this. But I'll tell you... This is what I think. Right? I need a place in my mind to kind of put this story. This is what I think. Certainly at this time, this is known and appreciated, that perfume or incense and these kinds of things played a larger role in day-to-day life than they do now because it was very difficult to control body odor and other kinds of odors. It was a stinky time. So it mattered to them. These kinds of things like perfumes, that was things that the wealthy uh, could show their wealth through. It's certainly a way to shape the environment around you. And they were, they were more esteemed. They were more part of a social engagement than they are today. Even some of you put on perfume on your way here today. I sought out my bottle of cologne today because of this message. So I think that's the case. But this is how I imagine Mary with this thing. Or this is, might be a, a, a way that you can say that it would sound reasonable in your mind. Imagine that this was Mary's perfume for her wedding. That on her wedding day, this, is what, this was going to be the big family, this was the expensive way that the family was going to dress up the wedding for her, that for her, her wedding night and her whole wedding day, that she would be adorned in this lotion. Now, the that, that I think is reasonable. And what is certainly, certainly true about it is, it's that kind of gift It's that kind of family idea of this thing is for the most important day of your life. The most important day of your life. And today, she breaks it and she pours it on Jesus. That's special. That is pure affection is what that is. When love like this is so nonsensible, that's when it's all affection. You know, sometimes on Christmas, my wife and I always go back and forth about gifts. We have this banter that isn't always healthy. It's mostly healthy. But she'll say, why did you get this for me? I didn't need it. And to which my answer is, that's why I got it for you. Because there is something magical about a gift that you don't need. It's just better. It just has this quality that says, I'm giving it to you because of who you are. Now, I did get her a vacuum cleaner also. So it's not like I've got this figured out. But I'm learning, hence the not wholly healthy banter that happens. But that's what's going on here, is Mary is expressing this kind of compassionate affection for Jesus. And she does it, just notice her posture and the way it happens. She does it in a way that, that only, would only work with Jesus Christ. She, she's doing his feet, she's wiping his feet with this ointment. Now that is the kind of thing that a servant would do. So that shows this great humility before her master, you might want to say. But she's doing it in an intimate way. 
She's wiping it with her hair, and it's her own prized possession. This is, this is a person, Jesus Christ is a person that we approach humbly, but we can approach intimately. And I don't know of anyone else like that. That we can both approach so humbly because of who he is, but we can approach so intimately because of who he is. Mark says she gave everything she could, is how he describes it. Mark doesn't name her. He says this woman gave everything she could. Now, across the room is a gentleman named Judas, and he has this criticism. And John tells you why he has this criticism, because he's a thief. But the other gospel writers remind us that Judas is not alone in this. In Mark, it says that others criticized her. And in Matthew, it says the disciples criticize her. And so what I think John is doing, he's drawing out the chief architect of this criticism. He's drawing out, and by the way, the very next account is the fact that after this account, Judas agrees to betray Jesus Christ. So there's, there's kind of a crescendo on Judas right here. But this is, the, this is the criticism of what's happening here, of this kind of elaborate, affectionate love. Here's the criticism. Man, what a waste of money. She just wasted all of this money on Jesus. Can you believe that? What a waste. How many people could we have fed, but she goes and squanders it on Jesus? Now, the only people that can say that are people who do not know Jesus. And that's the world. The world will always be baffled by the way we squander have frivolous affection on Jesus Christ. They're going to always be able to think of something better. You could spend a dollar on Jesus, and they're going to say, you could have bought a 99-cent hamburger for the poor. Because for them, any good is better than Jesus. Do you see how this is working? If you don't know Jesus, you cannot understand affection for him. If you're outside of Christ... If, 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 if you, you could know a lot about Jesus and not understand this. You could know all the answers about Jesus and still not understand this because unless you know Jesus, the affection does not make sense. And this is, this is where Mary is so unique. Martha, Judas, the disciples, the others who criticized, these are people who know a lot about Jesus. Many of us, we know a lot about Jesus. And this, is, this can be real love. Don't get me wrong. This can be very devotional, dutiful kind of love. We believe. We really believe in the things he says. We place our faith in him. We obey because we believe it's true. We work and labor in our lives to be faithful to him. We do all of these things because we believe. It's our job. This is, this is what we're called to do. We, it is possible to be that kind of Christian, full of Christian duty, full of Christian ethic, full of what it means to be Christian and to lack the affection of Jesus. Because we know a lot about him, but we don't know him. Mary knows him. And for her, this is the most important day. And this is the thing. Is it, is Mary's, it is Mary's act at this dinner on this very day that perfectly and accurately portrays Jesus Christ. Now think of that, on this day, on this day at this very ceremony, he's at, it's right before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he's at a party in his honor. Now just how does that sound on the cosmic scale? 
that before we sent Jesus in for his crucifixion, we threw a party in his honor. That sounds lame. Just a, a party in his honor. You could throw a party in the honor of a representative. You could throw the party in the honor of a rabbi. You could throw a party in the honor of Caiaphas. You could throw a party in the honor of the local centurion. Anybody can have, can have a party in their honor. That does not accurately portray who Jesus is. You could throw a party in the honor of anybody who would heal your brother. So that's what the party is. They think they're elevating Jesus because they're throwing a party in his honor. We do that for people all the time. Jesus says, she gets it. In fact, Jesus kind of implies she's the only one here who seems to understand who I really am. And in fact, I think the Lord is so pleased with her offering that he imputes in it this this double meaning of the fact that it is for the burial of Jesus Christ that she is actually placing the lotion on him for his burial. And I have to imagine, as close as he is to death, I wonder if when he's being whipped and scourged and nailed to the cross, if there was a scent on his body still of this lotion. I wonder if it's still in Mary's hair as she's watching him. That's affection. That's affection, the affection of Christ. There's a caution, I think, for Christians, especially dutiful Christians like ourselves. This is a dutiful church. This is a church of people who we want to know what to do. We want to do the right thing. We want to be observant of God's teachings. We want to know more about God. We're certainly a church that appreciates information. And so I want you to take this as a discipling moment to say you can be a believer. You can be a believer in Jesus Christ. You can be part of the body. You can know a whole lot about Jesus Christ. You can be very obedient to the teachings of Jesus Christ, but you may not know him very well. You may not know him. You may not know him like Mary knows him. You may be like that husband who goes, "What? how does she not know I love her? Look at everything I do. And I wonder if Jesus, for some of us, is saying, I just want you to talk with me. When was the last time we talked? When was the last time that you actually thanked me for something for real, not like, Lord, bless this meal, amen. Like, really stop to think, the fact that I can eat is grace from God. Jesus wants us to know him. Not to know about him, to know him. And it is qualitatively a different kind of love. It's better. It's better. And it, that kind of love propels us to do the devotional, faithful kind of love too. Here, let's just ask yourself in your own mind, who do you think would feed the poor better? Judas or Mary? People who love Jesus with that kind of sacrificing, affectionate heart are the people who love the homeless with a sacrificing, confessional, affectionate heart. It's the same people. It's the affectionate love of Christ that is the accurate portrayal of who Jesus is. Not simply doing the things God tells us to do. And for a church that's kind of on a season of mission, we've been talking about what to do and how to do it and where to go and how to be, we need to remind ourselves that if we do not know who Jesus is, if we don't know him, we will not accurately portray him regardless of what we do. We have to portray the Jesus we know. And that comes through affection. 
So how do we do this? How do you show Christ-like affectionate love? This has been a very difficult part of the message for me. Because since we are such a take a list, check it twice kind of church, I'm scared that I'd say, well, you do this, and you're going to all like write down, I'll do this three times, and then I will fulfill my duty in having an affectionate love of Jesus Christ. I'll get like six affectionate points in heaven. And so I don't want to do that. So all I'm going to give you is concepts. These are just concepts. How do you show affectionate love to Christ? Do you enjoy Jesus? Do you enjoy Him? Do you enjoy your faith? There's a catechism question that, was, that is phrased this way. What is the chief end of man? To which the answer is this. To glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. That's the answer. Well, someone once took it. His name is John Piper, and he did something of singular genius. He says this. What is the chief end of man? He, does, he says it is not to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. He says it is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Do you enjoy Jesus Christ? Do you enjoy the things He's done? Do you enjoy the world He's made? Do you enjoy the children given to you? When your children say something that's profoundly biblical and they have no clue, do you worship Jesus? Do you worship Him? I guess that's the first question. Here's another one. Do you, are you in the habit of doing things freely? Are you in the habit of doing things freely? Not because people are watching. Not because you're a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or you've been in the faith a long time or because your kids are there. Not because you know you ought to do it. Do you enjoy doing it? Would you rather do what Christ wants you to do than not do what Christ wants you to do? If, you, if, if you're enjoying doing it, it's an affectionate offering of love to Jesus Christ. It's good to do it anyway. Don't get me wrong. Do it. I'm saying there's a qualitatively better way to do it, and that's to enjoy doing it. Do you recognize special circumstances in your life? When things happen that just remind you that God is good, do you recognize them and give thanks to the Lord for them? On Friday, I was out of the farm, and um, I just wanted to stay at the farm. So I called, I called my wife up. I said, I, I think I'm just going to hang out at the farm for a while. Because you saw Friday. Friday was gorgeous, right? And she said, uh, she said no, you're not. She said, we're trying to put our house on the market at home. There's a lot you need to do. You've got to come home. And she was right. I mean, she was right. She was right. I agreed. I'm going to come home. I'm coming home. So I hung up the phone to come home. And the next thing you know, I was sitting down outside listening. It was just like I was enjoying God. I couldn't not enjoy him. I had to just sit there and think, is that a frog or is that a bird or is that... It's just... That's affectionate. Jesus sees that as affectionate love. Worship should precede practicality. Worship should precede practicality. If you want to foster an affectionate love relationship with the Lord, worship should precede it, which means it will not always make common sense why you're taking time to worship. 
And that's okay. Do it for the Lord. I'm going to close with, well, in closing, this is the last idea. I want to bring the idea of prayer to you because sometimes you ever feel like you've been in a relationship so long but that you've grown distant and now you don't, even, you don't even feel like you have anything in common anymore and so it feels awkward to even talk. It's difficult to even sit down and visit because you don't feel like you know the person. That is what it feels like for those of you who do not pray. That you want this affectionate relationship with the Lord but you haven't taken the time to visit with Him. And so it's like, well, it feels awkward for me to pray to God. And I'm going to say, it should feel awkward. You're starting a life where you don't know Him, and you're living a life getting to know Him. There will be times of awkwardness, but you need to. You, you need to have a dutiful sense about it in order to pursue, pursue an affectionate approach to God. You need to begin to pray and listen. Pray about everything. Pray about all things, twice daily, a hundred times daily. Never cease in praying. On your way to work, if you're not looking forward to today, on your way to work, tell God, I am not looking forward to it. You don't have to be eloquent. Just tell him, I don't want to go. Help me. That is affectionate love because it's one sentence more than you said yesterday. On the way home, at your playgroup, when you see your children, when they rise, when they sleep, just like the Bible says, pray. And pretty soon you will know Jesus. Finally, seek to remember his grace. I think that spurs us to affection. We, we've chosen to preach out of John for the, up, up through the season of Easter because John romances us into Jesus. He's so good at that. But I'd say seek to recognize. Seek to recognize that Jesus Christ is telling a story or the story is being told of a woman who breaks something of great value and pours it over someone, is that not what Jesus has done for us? Was not Jesus this prized vessel who is broken by God so that his righteousness might be poured out for us? Are those not the images that are conjured in communion and in baptism, this idea that you and I have a stench of sin in us? And it makes no practical sense for God to destroy his own son. That makes no sense. Think of how many people Jesus could have fed had he not gone to the cross. Wasn't that Satan's temptation? Hey, deny Christ and I'll give you all the power. You can feed everybody you want. Just don't be who you are. Don't be so frivolous with your affection. But Jesus broke himself and poured himself out on us. Our church has been called to be a church of frivolous affection by enjoying God forever. Amen.